I think we, we hit the, the magic formula for figuring out how to get people to sit on this side today. Um, when that projector doesn't work, people gravitate over there. Man, I mean, I'm going to write a, an article about this. It's going to be life-changing for church world in the United States. Um, man, maybe we should make words really small and people would sit up front in other churches. That'd be, that'd be really cool. I think we're on to something. Manipulation at its finest. That was accidental this morning. There was there's streamers and things like that that didn't help. And even the uh, the strong seafood smell, that was not on purpose either. Um, I don't know if you pick up on it. Maybe it's because I just got back from the beach. But I smell it. It's here. Um, and I can point you towards the origin of it. But either way, it's here. And so when we lease a space, every week the origin of it. Yeah, that was accidental. Um, but I do have a database of dad jokes. And uh, but anyway, sorry, David Bonner, I'm not stealing that one. I heard it a long time ago, but I heard you repeat it. Uh, yeah, man, it's good to be back. My family and I, we got to have a little vacay last week. And last Sunday while you guys were worshiping, I was watching the sunrise on a patio or a porch at, in Folly Beach or catching the tail end of it anyway. Um, and uh, to be honest, it was good, but I, I wanted to be here. Like, I just, I told, I think I told Zach, I'm like, man, I am terrible at being away. I was shooting messages and just asking stuff and not so much control freak, but I just, I wanted to be here. Like, I was grateful to be away, but I missed uh, gathering with the family, and I, I think that's, uh, man, I think that's good. I hope it's good. Um, but we're back. Uh, we're going to be jumping back into Mark this morning, and, and it's kind of a continuation of what we looked at three weeks ago. Like we did, we had a Love the City Day. Zach nailed that, hit it out of the park like five times, really, really good in one message. And then my buddy Cliff Marshall was here last week, and I hope you got to meet Cliff. He is like, uh, he is one of my guys on speed dial for just like when things are not going right and I have questions, it generally starts out with like, hey, Cliff, got a question for you. <laughs> or either just like help, like he's that guy. Uh, he's got a ton of experience and a ton of wisdom, and he's just, he's like that wise uncle that everybody needs. Um, you know, so glad he got to come and, and hang out with you guys last week. But today we're back. We're going to wrap up chapter 11 of Mark, and we're going to jump into chapter 12. But it is kind of a continuation of an odd passage that we looked at three weeks ago, and maybe you weren't here, but it was about that fig tree. And it was the fig tree, it was the temple cleansing, and back to the fig tree. And in that particular passage, uh, like we read it, and I, I told you it was, was going to kind of leave you hanging a little bit uh, because there were some assertions that we made, and you're like, how did we get there? This is how we got there, the passage that we're going to look at today. Because we talked about then that Jesus was uh, pronouncing judgment, he was also pronouncing prophecy, and he was teaching, and he was pronouncing judgment on the leadership and the people in charge of the religious life of Israel. Today, he's going to speak in parable again, but it's one of those parables that the people hearing it would not have had to think very hard to know what he was saying. Because there was times in which, there were times in which Jesus spoke in parable, and it was kind of like those who have ears, those who the Spirit is dealing with, let them hear and understand. But for the rest of you, you're going to be scratching your beards a little bit. But this one, in this place, even though it's still allegorical, the people that he's talking to and telling the parable to, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the tail end of this passage, we'll see that they were like, oh, I get it. And so today, I want us to get it too. And so... In, in like a lot of cases that we find in Scripture, I think as we grew up, a lot of times we think if we grew up in the church, we would hear a parable and we would just think that they were an island statement that Jesus used to teach. Like he would sit down and just tell a parable. But today what we get to see and what we need to remember with most parables is that parables were Jesus' way of answering a question. A majority of the time a parable just didn't pop up as a means to like, hey, I'm going to teach you something. It was someone asked something and Jesus' way of dealing with that is, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. 
And a lot of times there was one eternal truth that was trying to be communicated. And so there's a, uh, you know, we need to take, keep that in mind so we don't look too deeply into allegorical parables. But at the same time, uh, there were some things that he was trying to communicate. I'm going to pray and then we're going to read. Um, and I've been excited about this passage. And so I'm going to try to keep that and the copious amounts of caffeine I've had today uh, in check. So here we go. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for today. Thank you that we get to gather under a worthy Savior. Uh, with a worthy spirit that is in this place, uh, and for a worthy Father um, who deserves our adoration. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does. Uh, thank you for who it points us to. And God, thank you for what it does to make us look more like Jesus. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the first part of this passage is going to be chapter 11, verse 27. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's going to be on one of these screens, this one. Uh, but if you do need a Bible, you can always grab one in the back and keep it, make it your own, write in it, put your name in it, all that stuff. So chapter 11, verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of all the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Like, I, I don't know why that makes me chuckle a little bit, but it is interesting, and it should be insulting to me and actually a little bit uh, frightening to me too, that the only people that Jesus ever seemingly got like a little bit lippy with were the religious folks. Like he flipped their tables, literally, but he flipped their tables metaphorically a lot too, and this was one of those cases. He was like, oh, you got a question for me? I got a question for you. Okay, here's my question. You want to know by what authority I do these things? Let me, let me ask you this. Basically, his other question was, by what authority was John baptized? Man's authority or God's authority? And the people that were listening, they were like, well, we, we don't know what to say right now. They kind of huddled up. You know, it's fourth and long. What do we do? They huddle up and they, they have a conversation. And they're like, man, if, if we say it's from God, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you take him at his word? Why didn't you do what he asked? Why didn't you go into the wilderness and repent? Why didn't you do that? And so they're like, we can't, can't say that. But if we say from man we're probably going to get strung up by all the people that really like this guy, Jesus, right now. So we're just going to lie and say, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus' response was, well, if you don't know, then I'm not telling you anything. And I love that. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I, I love that. But at the same time, I need to be very cautious because, to be honest, I know the leanings of my heart are to be like one of these Pharisees and scribes. Like, I openly admit that. Like, I don't want that. Like, that's not who I desire to be. But I know the sin leanings in me, the flesh that wages war against the spirit that God has given me as a result of salvation, I know that's the place that I gravitate towards. Like, I gravitate to the do's and the do not so that God will love me. That's not what Jesus did. That's not why he came. But that's where I gravitate. And so I read this, and it makes me chuckle, but it should make me go, oh, a little bit, make me squirm a bit. I don't know if that's you, but it's me. I'm not putting my stuff on you, Ricky Bobby, but I'm just saying that's, that's where I am. But either way, he does that, but then he does decide to answer them. Here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this recorded. In Matthew, there's another parable in between here, but either way, he answered them in parables. And in, verse, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, this is the way that we see him actually answering them because he he was being asked about his authority and so instead of answering by where his authority came from is what they were asking he said well let me let me answer you this way let's talk about your authority 
let's talk about your authority. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fig tree, and we talked about the fact that he was pronouncing judgment on the authorities of the day, and, and it was pretty, pretty bold. Like the way that we looked at it, we saw that he, he looked at the fig tree, and the disciples saw it, and they were like, this fig tree that you cursed the other day, Jesus, it's amazing, it's dead. And it was basically his way of saying the thing that was supposed to provide the nourishment to these people, provision for these people, guidance to these people, very much like the fruit of a tree, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so because it's not doing what it's supposed to do, I'm going to tell you it's going to cease to exist. And so he told it to the disciples, today I'm going to give it away. He's going to tell it to the people that are the fig trees. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, let's, let's read through that, and then we'll, we'll talk through it a bit. And it says, And he began to speak to them in parables. Here's his parable. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? That's Jesus asking a question in his parable. He will come, destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had, been to that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We have a series of events that's going to begin to unfold in this, this Passion Week, and it's already beginning here of uh, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, coming to Jesus, asking a question in hopes of catching him so that they could kill him, or at least arrest him at the very least. The questions progress, their anger progresses uh, to the point that we know what happens. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was falsely accused and falsely convicted and completely and utterly decimated on our behalf. We know that that happens. This place is no different. They were asking a question. They were like, by what authority do you do these things? Like, we read all the pages leading up to this. Uh, the fact that he had cleansed the temple. The fact that he came in and people were singing Hosanna. Uh, the fact that he had healed people. The fact that he had taught with authority. All of these things. They finally come to him right before this parable. And they're like, by what authority do you do these things? Who's given you the right to do these things? Don't you know that we're in charge? I mean, because that was the root of their question. Like, don't you know... Jesus of Nazareth, you carpenter's son, don't you know, amazing stuff you're doing, by the way, but don't you know we're in charge? This show that you're stepping all over, it's ours. It's ours. The temple that you just raided and flipped and chased people out, ours. The Sabbath that you've desecrated, ours. The law that you've been quietly fulfilling bit by bit and making it look like that you own it and that you wrote it, ours. All of those things that Jesus had done, they're offended at this point because they're like, that's all ours. What are you doing? Who gave you the right? Has anybody ever asked you that quite indignantly? 
like indignantly, like just said, who gave you the right? I don't know, something in me, when somebody asks me that, like it stirs up in me the southern boy that wants to fight immediately. Like, I'll tell you who gave you the right. But anyway, anyway, I don't fight. That's not who I am. But there's something in me that wants to. But anyway, we're going to move on quickly. And so anyway, that's what he did when they said, who gave you the right? Chapter 12 He's not going to answer that, but he is going to talk about the thing that they're so indignant about, their stuff, their way, their rules, their law, all of the things that they think they own and belongs to them. He's going to address them, what's going on, about what's going on with it. So he tells them the story. And like, to be honest, the way that he begins this story, they would immediately be transported back to Isaiah 5. We call it Isaiah 5. They would have just called it a part of their holy scriptures that they would have read. But Isaiah 5, uh, we have that on the screen, or we will have that on this screen. Sorry, yeah, I'm always a left looker. i got to be a right looker today. Um, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. We'll come back to that in just a minute. When he began to tell this parable about a vineyard, they would have been like, man, we've, we've heard that before. We've heard that before. It was, I think it was from the prophet Isaiah. Hmm. Yeah, we have. And so he, he starts with this parable. He's like, there was a man, built a vineyard, did it right. Built a tower in the midst, built a wine press, did all of these things. And then instead of him staying to watch it, he leased it to other people, tenants, for them to watch it. Not, not like servants, not like slaves, but people who would, should take ownership, treat it well, because it was about their livelihood, but it was also about the livelihood of the man who owned the vineyard. So it says he went away, left it with them. Left it with them to, to grow the grapes, to take care of the property, to take care of all that was in there, to provide. And it says at some point he sent a servant back one of his, to go back and collect some of the bounty. It wasn't stealing. It wasn't thievery. It was all his. He was trusting it to these people to do what they agreed to do. And so he sent a servant back to collect some of the grapes, in this case, and bring it back. But instead of giving him grapes, instead of giving him parts of the proceeds or even financial, instead of giving anything, you know, it says they, they beat him. And says they took him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And so the owner, what does he do? He sends another. In verse 4, it says, again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. The struck him on the head part, of people, a lot of people scratch their, their head about this, but it might have been like an open-hand slap, just something that was very just, you know, distasteful and shameful, that kind of thing. But either way, they shamed him, they beat him, they sent him away. Verse 5, it says, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. So the owner kept sending one servant after another, after another, after another. And the tenants who were there who were supposed to take care of the, the land, who were supposed to grow the grape to provide nourishment, to, to actually pay for their right to be there, they beat them, they killed them, they shamed them, one after another after another, after another. Go back to verse 3 of Isaiah. It says, O now, 
O inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is a result of the grapes not growing the way they should, not good grapes, but wild grapes. It says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to me, for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? Pause right there. The verse 4 question of, what more could I do? What more could I do that I have not done? When comparing the two, the result is going to be slightly different, but the setting is the same, and the intent of God and the landowner is the same. Went above and beyond, over and over and over. In one place, in Isaiah, uh, this is referencing the, the people of Israel. The people of Israel, the grapes, are those people that were to be grown, that were be, to be taken care of, that were to be provided for, that were to grow into a holy nation that would grow and spread the truth of the one true God to the entire world. But instead of grapes, he found wild grapes, found intermingling, found diluted versions of truth, found inaccurate, inaccurate representations of the one true God, found forms of this truth that were perverse and ugly, and untrue, and we're not pointing people to God, but instead, we're bringing about destruction. But the question is the same. What more could I have done? In the case in the parable, same idea. What more could I have done? I sent you one servant after another, after another, after another. The servants that are being referred to in chapter 12 of Mark was just the one messenger of God after the other messenger of God after the other messenger of God, the other messenger of God, the most recent being John the Baptist, who they had just asked about. They just asked about. He said, I have sent my oracles in the form of people who are obedient and loving and subservient to me to tell you the truth, to guide you towards who I am over and over and over. And your response has been the same. Beat them, shame them, kill them. Some people read this and they read it in such a way that they're like, man, that, that landowner is an idiot. I mean, seriously, that's... That's the way they take it. They're like, why would he keep sending one servant after another, after another, after another? We'll get to that. So what more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Five through seven. And now I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge protection, and it shall be devoured. It will be overrun by everyone that surrounds it. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, know, they, they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In this place, he pronounced judgment. His judgment is, you didn't keep what I gave you. You didn't take care of what I gave you. And so you're going to be scattered. You're going to be scattered. The thing that I trusted to you is going to be trampled. It's not going to be safe for you anymore. 
You're going to be scattered. Now, every time that God spreads his people, a diaspora of sorts, every time he does that, he also spreads his truth with the remnant that goes with that. If we read the Old Testament and continue, there's a rise and a fall, a rise and a fall, a rise and a fall. With every rise, there's victory. With every fall, there's judgment. And a majority of the time with those falls, there's also a spreading of people. People are going to come in. Your walls are going to be torn down. Your protection is going to be removed. Your hedge is going to be gone. And what's going to happen? You're going to be carried away and taken somewhere else. But there's always this remnant, that core of people that held true to the one true God. And as they were spreaded, guess what happens? The truth of the one true God would go with them. We even see this in Acts. Like in Acts with the stoning of Stephen. Said the persecution spread them, and wherever they went, there too the gospel went. We see the Great Commission being fulfilled as a result of the stoning, our first martyr. But in this place, in Isaiah, before even all of the, the amazing in-depth prophecy that Isaiah would utter over the next, uh, the next decade or so, he said, you have not taken care of what I've given you. You didn't grow the goodness, the truth, the singularity of the one true God. You allowed it to be mingled and commingled with other things, diluted, perversed. And as a result, I'm going to trample over it and spread you out. There will be a remnant, but I'm going to do it. But in the case of Mark, in the case of Mark, uh, and we see in Isaiah, he identifies who the vineyard is, what the vineyard is. It's the people of Israel, the men, the women of Judah and Israel, those tribes, those were the grapes. Those were to be the things that were going to be grown up. But in Mark, the, the parallel breaks down here because he's not just talking about the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He's not just talking about them anymore. Now he's talking about the leadership, the authority, uh, the culture that has been accumulated by the Pharisees and the scribes. They were put in place by trustful people as, as speakers of God to take care of the people of Israel, to guide the people of Israel, to teach them the truth about the one true God so that they may not stray. But we see in the, the hundred some odd years from the time in which they were placed in authority, uh, you know, at the end of their, their, their seeking of uh, independence at the end of the B.C. period, to now we see that they had grown this law to a place that it couldn't possibly be kept. They had no longer been content just to pursue God and His holiness through their adoration and through their submission. No, they wanted to, uh, to, to hamper people down with a law that was so weighty and unattainable that no one could do it. And that every day was brought forth in guilt. Every day ended with great guilt because no one could possibly live up to the standard that was given to them by those who were in charge. These Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, these people that were supposed to be growing figs. Verse 6 says he still had one other. Good grief. Just the audacity of our God to continue to send one after another, after another, after another, to watch them be struck down, to watch them be humiliated, to watch them be killed. Men with names like Jeremiah, men with names uh, like Isaiah, men with names like Nehemiah, to, to watch them be ignored, but to speak truth. 
to watch them boldly proclaim the goodness of God that we yield to, only to see them killed. To send one as a voice crying out in the wilderness, just to prepare the way for the one whose sandal strap he was not fit to untie, to see him killed. And yet he kept sending. He kept reaching. Until it culminated with one more. One more. Our beloved son. Same phrasing, same word order that we would have seen at the baptism at the beginning of Mark. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Same word order that we would have seen at the, configure, the transfiguration on the mountain in which he took just a few of his disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the parable of the tenants, after one servant, after another, after another, after another, and many more were killed, beaten, humiliated. He says in verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. And then this word gets me, finally. Like, I don't know, it may not land on you, but it lands on me. Like, finally, at last, the last, finally. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. It's my beloved son. Of course, they'll respect my son. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. There's some guesstimation about standards and practices that if... uh, if a landowner abandons a property for X number of years, I think at this time they were guessing around four years, and there were people that had been diligently working it for that amount of time. If that landowner abandons it, they can take it and make it their own. And they say that the thought in this passage was, if we kill his son, surely he will send no one else. He'll leave us alone, and all of this will be ours. Same thing the Pharisees thought. Same thing they thought when they asked, by what authority? Who gave you the right to talk about our stuff? To talk about our ways? To confront our practices? To confront our religion? To talk about our fruit or lack thereof? Who gave you the right? They already thought it was theirs. They assumed it was theirs. They acted like it was theirs. When all this time it was not. Never was meant to be. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asked in his vineyard parable, he's like, what will the owner of the vineyard do? It's probably about the time that the wheels started turning in the brains of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders that were listening. Because in just a minute, we see them. They're like, oh, he's, he's talking about us. And any reasonable man, if this would have happened and he was a landowner, what would he do to the tenants? Well, we know what he would do to the tenants. He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Now, In this place, uh, 
we can make a couple of assumptions. One would be, I think, wrong. One would be accurate. One would be saying that God's going to remove his favor and his love from the people of Israel and place it on Gentiles. We can read the rest of the story and know that's not true. That would be the wrong assumption. The other assumption would be that he's going to remove the authority, the power, the place of the Pharisees. By the way, in about 30 years, they're going to cease to exist, and he's going to place it squarely on the bride of Christ, the church. The stone that's being built right now, not the cornerstone, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the stone, the rock, not Peter, but at this point, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. We see in the early parts of Acts the beginnings of the bride of Christ as a result of the salvation of Jesus, the inner workings of the Holy Spirit that would come and land on them like tongues of fire and the Spirit would fall down and the church would be born. The authority of the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law was being removed from them as a result of them mismanaging, mistreating, abusing, neglecting, assuming ownership. It would be removed from them and placed on the church. The bride of Christ, dressed in splendor, no matter how bad we screw it up. He said, I'll trample the tenants. And what they thought was theirs will be removed and be given to the others. The church is born. The ecclesia, the, the family, is born. And it saddens me that it had to happen as a result of mismanagement of grace and mercy. But God works because there's a remnant. There's a remnant. At this point, there's 12 plus several hundred others that are following and hanging on every word, the very people that these scribes and Pharisees were afraid of if they actually spoke their mind, that remnant, that group that knew the truth, that pursued the truth, that loved the truth and called him Jesus, they were there. The authority that had been built and shown and displayed in cords and robes and beards and keeping the law in a very public fashion, that authority was going to be removed from them placed on fishermen, placed on tax collectors, placed on people that had left everything for no fame, no glory, no repayment, just Jesus, just Jesus. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. And then he reminded them of a passage in Psalms. Like first, pointed them back to Isaiah. They would have known exactly what it was here they would have known exactly that, that he was talking about Psalm 118. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And now he's pointing them towards something else that's going to occur. He already gave them an idea that this beloved son would be killed, disgraced. And he's like, and by the way, you may not know this now, but in a few days, it may land on you. This stone that you rejected uh, will become the one thing that everything is built off of. The one thing that everything is built off of. The cornerstone back then was like uh, similar to our plumb bob that we use when building. Because gravity never changes, so we use a plumb bob when we start construction, and there's always a straight line dictated by gravity that never changes. The cornerstone was set in a building and it was completely true, completely flat, and everything would be built off of it. So the building would not be askew, would not be unlevel, would not be off-center. The cornerstone. 
in the way that we do things now. We lay a level, strong, firm foundation. For them, it was different. But the idea is the same. He said, this stone that you've rejected, by the way, me, whom you're going to kill shortly, the beloved, I'm going to be the foundation for everything. For everything. Why can I say that? Because it was the work of God, not the work of man. And it's beautiful. And it's beautiful. Verse 12. (laughs) They were seeking to arrest him. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left and went away. Here they were like, oh gosh. Hey boys, we're the tenants. We're the tenants. We're the mismanagers. We're the corruptors. We did. Our dads and our dad's dads and our dad's dad's dads, they killed many. And we just, we watched John the Baptist beheaded and we didn't say a word. We didn't believe a word he said. We're the tenants. It says they were afraid. So they left. They left. What do we do with this? I think the first thing is we sit back and we just gaze unendingly at God's unending grace and mercy. Because the sins of a few could have very well caused the rest of us to be wiped out. Because they corrupted all. They almost corrupted all. The sins of those few in, in the course of mankind and history God would have been completely justified in His holy, holy, holiness to wipe us off the face of the planet. But instead, He sent another, and 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 sent another, another, until it all culminated with the one. God would skin on His own Son, even though He knew from the time that He took His first breath in a manger that He would be marching to the cross. Send another, send another, send another. If nothing else, for us, this parable should remind us that God went to great lengths, costly lengths, to make his church, to redeem us. Those of us who have been bound to God through Jesus and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, choosing to abandon our sins and choosing Jesus instead, God went to great lengths for you. Great lengths. And he could have stopped at any time, but he didn't. At the appropriate time, at the appropriate place, in the appropriate season, God sent Jesus. Because he went to great lengths. And so, yes, when we read this parable that was squarely pointed (laughs) at the tenants, it should remind us the grapes God loves us entirely. Entirely. But here's the beautiful thing about this. The authority to teach, the authority to train, the authority to speak the truth of God has now been placed on a royal priesthood. And if we're bound to God through Jesus, we're that. We might not have the cords. We might not have the robes. Some of you have the beards but it's not the same. A royal priesthood chosen by God for his glory. That's us. Went to great lengths. 
great lengths. I love Isaiah verse five, chapter five, verse four. We don't have to throw it up there, but it's like, there's nothing that could be done that I didn't do. Then and now, he kept pursuing. Kept pursuing. There's that. The second, I think we need to prime ourselves, prepare ourselves to accept this marvelous foundation. Prime ourselves, prepare ourselves to accept, in these words, the marvelous foundation that is Jesus. And where does that stop? Man, it it doesn't. It doesn't. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. Uh, If we build on anything else, a little like Cliff talked about, if we build on anything else, it will not be true. It will not be square. It will topple on any other foundation than Jesus. Because not only is he a cornerstone, he is the singular cornerstone, the only true place to start. And so as we grow a, a church in downtown, we need to trust the marvelous cornerstone. As we grow our families, we trust the marvelous cornerstone. As we continue on mission, we trust the marvelous cornerstone. Because not to give it away, but I will, because that's my job. If we build a church on anything else, it doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It has zero value eternally. We can build a church on on Flash, we can build a church on social media, we can build a church on anything. And I'm not opposed to to that stuff, but I'm saying if we build a church on anything other than Jesus, it's pointless. It's pointless. Eternally insignificant. You say, well, that's not fair, but it's true. Church exists to grow, to shepherd, to teach those called by God for the glory of God and also invite others into the story. And we can't invite others into the story without Jesus. There's no way. Wrong story, wrong foundation, no good. Our families, our families, those of you who are young and maybe you're newlyweds and and you're, you're entering into this, I'll tell you, if you're building your marriage on anything other than Christ, yeah, you could stay together and have a long, long marriage together. But I promise you, If your foundation is anything other than Jesus, it will not be the kind of marriage that it could be, the kind of marriage that echoes the love of Jesus, the kind of marriage that invites people into the story of God, the kind of marriage that when your table is filled with people, it's not just about the food, but it's about the banquet, which is Jesus. If you're trying to grow your children in any way other than being rooted and founded in the foundation of Jesus, they could be great moral little children. They could go on to write amazing code. They could go on to solve world problems. But eternally, if you're building them on a foundation other than Christ, the mission that we've been placed on in this city if we're doing it with any other foundation than Jesus, it's just not worth it. If we go into PMAC, Piedmont Women's Center, the schools that we're partnering with, the city that we love to be around, and Jesus is not at the center of that, we're just a civic organization. And we may be able to do some neat things. We may be able to raise some money. We may be able to fix some broken things. But ultimate brokenness will remain. Eternal separation will continue. The city needs our foundation to be Jesus. Your streets that you live on, they need your foundation to be Jesus. Your coworkers, they need your foundation to be Jesus. 
Because if it's not, how are they going to hear about eternal significance of being known by God and knowing God and being allowed to make Him known? They won't, not from you. And then the last thing is kind of a warning. Those are good. Like, yes, yeah, we, we need to, to see God's amazing grace and mercy and just kind of sit back and be in awe of it. We also need to accept the marvelous foundation, live in response to that. But I think there's a warning that exists here too. Treat the things that God has entrusted you, entrusted to you, like they're his. Because if we don't, they might be taken away. Now, this is not to elicit guilt. That's not the point. But I think the people that heard this, even the disciples, even though they were not the tenants, I think they probably heard this and they were probably like, huh, God's entrusted with me a lot. I should probably, I should probably take care of it. Because I don't want to be trampled and have the stuff that he's trusted to me given to someone else. The things that God's given you, same things that we just listed, our church, our families, our mission, Treat them like they're gods because they are. But it extends to, to more than that. It extends to the relationships. The relationships that you've been given, that you've been placed in, not of any work of your own or any doing of your own, treat them like they're gods because they are. There's a point to them. Your influence, you have it, believe it or not. Dads, moms, you have influence on your kids all day long. We don't stop to think about that very much, but your kids, they see you. They smell you. They listen to you. They know you. Treat that influence that God gave you like it's his, because it is. Your money, not yours. Not your money. You're like, yes, it is. I made it. Not your money. Not my money. God's money. He asks us to watch over it, to shepherd it, to be good tenants of his resources. Treat it like it's his. Put it where he wants it. Because if you don't, it could be taken away. Your time, not yours. Even though I say it's yours, not yours. My time, not mine. It's God's. Treat it like it's His. Treat it like it's His. All these things. He's asked us to be stewards, caretakers, managers. Because it's His. A landowner planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and went into another country and had tenants watch over it. We're just tenants. We're just tenants. Tenants for a good landowner, the best ever, who never stopped. Thank you guys for being here. It's good to see you. I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to dismiss with a benediction. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for grace that has been extended for generations before we ever breathed a breath. Thank you for those who you sent before us, who met an untimely end, who sacrificed themselves because they believed that your name was worthy of speaking that your mission was worthy to be lived on um, and that your truth was worthy to be shared. Thank you for the men and women that came before us that you sent. 
Thank you for the culmination that we get to see in Jesus. The fact that you did not stop. You did not stop. And it finally occurred that you sent the one, your only son, your beloved, so that we could know you and make you known. God, I pray that we look at the things that you've given us and we treat them like they are yours. We raise our children like they are yours. We treat our spouses like they are yours. We do our job like it's yours. And we remember we're just stewards. We're just stewards. And God, I pray that as we look at all of those things and the opportunities that you've given us, you remind us of your unending, unstopping grace and mercy. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. Well, if everyone would like to stand, we're going to go ahead and read some scripture together, and then we will head out into our week. <clears throat> this is coming from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. You guys have a great